0: This was about as bizarre and as easy
1: as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from
0: a sale of, you know,
1: $500,000 to in debt.
0: $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow.
1: This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by PreScore. What on earth is a PreScore? Pre stands for personal readiness to Exit your company. And here we're looking to evaluate how personally ready you are to leave your company. You know, when you go to sell a business to have a successful exit and look back on it without regret, you need two things. Number one, a company that is attractive to an acquirer, to a company that's built to sell. And number two, you personally need to be ready. To exit that business. We found that there are four drivers of a happy and lucrative exit, four ways you can personally ready yourself to exit your business. And by completing your pre-score, you are going to see how you're performing against those four major drivers of a happy and lucrative exit. Just go to prescore.com. So is your company a service business? If it is, I think you're going to like this next episode with Anson Sobey, who started a creative agency, built it up over six years, and sold it to one of the world's largest advertising agencies, a company called Havas. And in this episode, Anson talks a lot about the pros and cons to an earnout. And an earnout is a configuration where you're accepting some of your payment for your company in the future. It's a retention tool that acquirers use to keep you in the game after you sell your company. There are lots of tips and tricks to negotiating a Earnout that works for both sides, and in this episode, I think Anson does a great job of describing how he thought through the sale of his company. Now, if you're not a service company, rest assured, there's lots in this episode for you too, because regardless of what type of company you may have to have some form of transition period or earnout. And again, thinking through the nuances and details of that structure are going to be important. Here to tell you how Anson thought about it is Anson Sobey. Anson Sobey. Welcome to Built to Cell Radio.
0: Hi, great to be
1: here. The company that you start is called Battery. Tell us what precipitated you beginning this company. What what was it? How did you get into it? That kind of stuff.
0: So without backing up till I was four years old, but I'll try to do that <laughs> quickly. I, both my parents were entrepreneurs. Uh, my dad... Uh, I had a small medical practice. My mom was a sitcom director in the 80s. So she directed oh, cool. A-Team and L.A. Law and What's Happening Now. And I was, Wait,
1: your mom directed the A-Team? She did. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. See, that was my favorite show. The reason I'm so screwed up is because I spent, like, most of my youth watching A-Team Rewind. So
0: there you go. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll share a picture with you of me being babysat. Buying Mr. T uh, no! instead of the 18 a- that I was just <laughs> showing to someone yesterday, but but essentially <laughs> yeah, I was I, awesome. I I grew up around both my parents being entrepreneurs and and the, the work life balance really didn't exist and it all kind of melded you know together. So I guess in in, in my heart it was something I always knew I was going to do and I always was going to become an entrepreneur. Just maybe got started a little later than I thought because I didn't start battery until my mid. Uh, 30s. What did you do before? So uh, before that, I was on the marketing side. So I was in marketing for video games, uh, then films uh, and toys. So I was and kind so of I was essentially on the client side.
1: What was it that you thought being an entrepreneur would do that being on the client side would not do? Or like, what was it that you were going towards? <clears throat> I, I I think I just had this
0: itch to build something for myself. You know, luckily. The, the types of companies I was at, it was a very entrepreneurial video game company and a very entrepreneurial, you know, toy company. So, so I, even though I was in these larger companies, I, I, was, I was raised, quote unquote, in my 20s, thinking like an entrepreneur and, and, and not taking no for an answer and not taking anything at face value. So I think it was definitely part of my path. And I, it got to a point where I, I guess I was just mature enough to,
1: to, to be able to do it. By my Got it. And so you start battery. It's, it's a communications marketing agency. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Did you guys have a specific niche or like a special? We did. We, yes. Yeah. So, so when I started in
0: 2013, I saw the need because I was coming from video games, the need to, tr- so uh, the video game industry was starting to transition back then. What has now become Fortnite and call it live experience video games Video games were moving away from a packaged disc and they were being marketed like films back then. You try to sell as many copies as you can in the first two weeks in Walmart and then you get pulled off the shelf. Well, video games were starting to transition to these live evergreen experiences and I had worked a lot with Procter & Gamble and Unilever and I saw an opportunity to bring brand building rigor to video games Hmm. and treat them like consumer products rather than these tentpole entertainment releases. So that was the original point of Battery to bring that type of rigor to video games. And then we brought it to streaming entertainment with Netflix and then kind of moved along the gauntlet of entertainment. But originally it started with that uh, intent in mind.
1: And you grew up around the entertainment business. You're in LA. So that felt probably pretty natural to, to be in that space.
0: Yeah, I guess so. As natural as entertainment can feel, right? You, it still feels like such a bizarre... Weird world, yes. Even though I was babysat on the A-team, which sounds bizarre, and it is, uh, it just but entertainment is great because it's always changing. It's always ahead of the curve, whether it's technology, and that's why I love so much about the video game industry specifically.
1: And, and we were talking offline before we got started, and, and you shared that you started Battery with a view of building it to sell. Maybe talk to me about that.
0: I, I really did not to steal the, the name of your show, but I truly built it to sell. So when I started in 2013, I said, <clears throat> I want to sell this company. I want to be ready when the company is ready. Meaning I I'm building this company to sell it. I just didn't know what that meant. Did that mean I'm selling 10% to capitalize it so I can grow it more? Am I selling hundred percent and, walking off into the sunset? Am I selling it? You know, be, and then so I started to learn about all the different ways of selling it. Back then I thought, well, there's only one way. You sell it and then that's it. So I learned about earnouts. I learned about earn-ins, selling to private equity, selling to holding companies. But it was, it, that was very much my intent to do that from the beginning. So I, I actually started interviewing uh, M&A bankers to help me to do that within probably two and a half years of the company. Not that the company was ready by then, by no means, but I, I knew this would be a process. I knew it would take a few years. So that was, that was my whole headline since I work in advertising is yeah. I wanted to be ready when I felt the company was ready. And so I needed to make sure the financials, the structure, that I knew what I wanted. That, so, so that was the key point in, in actually bringing on bankers really early and interviewing different types of bankers in starting that process.
1: You know, there's a a kind of a pejorative sort of quote. uh, You've probably seen it in, I think it was in, fast company the first time I saw, it, which is like built to flip. And the idea that, that only the most greedy kind of money grubbing entrepreneur or whatever built to sell. It's a criticism I get all the time about like, how could you advocate people build companies to sell them? They should be building them to last to use a Jim Collins expression. How did you reconcile that in your own mind? Cause some people might say, well, that's totally the wrong way to build a company. You should build it, you know, so that you could, you'd be happy to run it forever.
0: I mean, I was, Honestly, I had that conversation quite a bit of that plan B thinking, should I build this to give to my son? You know, my son's 10 years old right now. Should I be giving it to him so he can come and work with me? So, so I thought I wanted to sell it, but obviously in the back of my mind, I thought, well, you know, what if my son wants to do this? What if, what if this is my retirement? What if this is what I should be doing? So I, I definitely wasn't, absolutely positive. I just felt that I did want to sell it. But to your point, I definitely wasn't looking at it as a flip because the challenge that service companies have, it's really tough for us to raise funding, right? We don't have a product. We don't have a subscription-based service. We're In advertising, we're selling people time like a law firm does, like a like a doctor's office. So we have a very difficult time in raising money. So I had also looked at the type of sell or sale that would allow us to quote unquote capitalize and raise money. And as we started growing, you know, pretty early on our clients were Warner brothers. Uh, they were Netflix, right? So we were going up, I I joked in the beginning, we were going up against other agencies that had more offices and we had employees. (laughs) I I truly felt, and and maybe it was part of my impatience, I didn't want to take 20 years to get it to a good place. I wanted to accelerate the growth. So but again, I was I was thinking, I was looking at all the different types of options. Flip it, keep it, capitalize it. It was just educating and and learning that process. So when I say built to sell, I think there's so many different meanings of the word sell. There's so many different ways to sell a business. And I, I I didn't know what it was, but I was determined to figure it out.
1: I want to get into that. Now, in 2013, you started, and as I understand it, uh, it was acquired in 2019, at which point you had 50 employees. That's a nice, that's a nice growth. That's an amazing run rate. Um, and I'd be curious as well if there was a time in that six-year run which felt um, difficult. You know, a lot of people listening to this right now are are going through tremendous challenges in their companies, um, and I wonder if if there was ever a, a a moment in time where you thought the company might be in jeopardy, or that you needed to make a huge pivot in order to survive.
0: Uh, every day, <laughs> <laughs> every day I was uh, nervous. Every day I thought the the company could go under. I mean, you know, it. It, it was, and that was also part of building it to sell, of finding that right partner, who, you know, again, thank God we 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 did do this a year ago. We're on much stronger ground during these horrible times now because of what we did do a year ago. I mean, it was, and it still is very much so. It still is a, a, a daily struggle. A daily. There were a lot of times where I felt like we could just go under because, as a service company. We're at the whim of our clients. If our clients pull our letters, if our clients pull a job. And so that was even more reason to strengthen the company. So those types of things, which are natural, that we could fortify and build a moat around our company.
1: Give us an example of some of the very tactical things you did to build to sell. I'd be really curious about the, the very kind of tactical, almost minutia level things that you did to, to set yourself up to sell.
0: So the first thing we did was try to align ourselves and bring on the right m and bankers. So met with probably five or seven different types of people who help a small business sell and continued. And so I started that. I want to say that was in about 2015 and I started that process and it took a couple of years of hmm maintaining relationships with these people, seeing what other types of businesses they were selling, seeing how hard they would try to sell me on their services, keeping in contact with them, seeing what types of information they would share with me. And so after about two years, I really honed in and I felt like I had found the the right one or the right group to help us do that. And that process was just eye-opening. Just seeing the types of transactions they were going through, seeing and honestly at that time they were all really keen to earn our business. That an unexpected benefit were the people they started introducing me to. So I actually met our CFO through one of the M and A groups who introduced me to him, and then that was this domino effect of bringing in a CFO and everyone I met. So that there were these unintended benefits that I couldn't have uh, uh, imagined. And also understanding how they were structuring it, what their fees were going to be, what type of percentage they took of the deal, what their relationships were. And it—it it, again, not like I spoke to these people every day, probably didn't speak to them more than once a quarter over the course of two years. But And then started to ask a lot of hard questions of myself. Personally, where did I want to be? So I was you know, 43 last year when I sold the company, I thought, okay, what age do I want to be? Where do, so it, it caused a lot of this inner reflection. So that was that was the meaning of the whole headline. I wanted to be ready when the company was ready. And that the MA guys, that 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 it was surprising how long that process took. And that was another uh light bulb. Man, this takes a long time, you know, <laughs> to, to sell it the right way. It's not just
1: yeah, no, uh, it's it's not just you know put put up an ad and right. <laughs> it's sold it. You know, how did your age impact your decision around selling?
0: Yeah, it 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 really did because it impacted the type of sale. I think I'm way too young to do a flip it sail off into the sunset and. Do whatever people do when they retire i 'm way too young and full of way too much energy to do that so but and but then I also looked at different earnout structures right where we 'd sell a percentage and earn out over two three four five years I thought okay well that 's interesting. If I do it over five years okay i 'll still be in my forties. I could theoretically still start another company in my early fifties, so absolutely because that was. And also the age of my kids, right? Thinking, okay, my son's 10. He's in the house for another eight years. My daughter's six. So that that all played a key role of where I wanted to be uh, age-wise at the time of transaction.
1: I guess there's another school of thought as well. I'd be curious to know if this went through your mind because, you know, yeah, one thing would be to sell at such a young age. But there may be another school of thought that said, you know, maybe I've got another 15 or 20 years left in my career. Why don't I hang on to hundred percent of the equity, build it five times the size and then sell it, you know, 20 years from now. Did that sort of thinking and maybe talk through how you arrived at your decision not to do that?
0: Yeah, it, 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 it absolutely did. So, uh, as, so let's say I want to say 2015 was an incredible year for us. It was just a real breakout year. Uh, we did big campaigns for Lego and Batman and, and you know, blanketed Times Square and did these big TV commercials that premiered during the NBA finals. And I honestly got a little cocky. I got a little <laughs> cocky. I thought, wow, this is easy. 24 months in and we're doing commercials with LeBron on the NBA finals. Man, I must really know what I'm doing. Yeah. And then 2016 was a I won't curse on her show. It was a piece of crap year. It was like the, the startup gods hit me in the face and said, no, you don't know everything after 24 months. And 2016 was a really bad year. We rebounded in 2017. But like they say, I think you learn the most from your failures and your successes. So I started to get very cocky early on. And I thought, oh, imagine when I can build this thing in 20 years. And then 2016 came around. Now, again, Not to say that I wanted to flip-flop that easy, but it just made me look at the different scenarios. And I'd say, without jumping ahead, once we hired the right M&A guys and we started actively shopping ourselves around to private equity firms, to traditional ad agency holding companies, to technology platforms, I started to see the types of deals they like to do and the types of deals they're comfortable with. And then I asked myself, okay, what is the right type of deal for me? So that was the big eye opener, taking a year and doing a roadshow across the US of meeting with all these different types of firms. And you know, they all really definitely have the types of deals they're comfortable with. And that's pretty obvious from the beginning of what the deals they like to do, especially these big groups that do lots of deals a year. So that also helped uh, uh, the process. Because I honestly, there were a couple ideas in my mind of deal structures that no one wanted to do that kind of deal. So I thought, okay, well, am I okay with the type of deal they want to do? That was a very long-winded uh, answer to a
1: simple No, it's great. I, I want to get to the deal structures in a minute, but tell me how you pulled yourself out of the mess that was 2016. What tactical things did you do to, to, to get the, the company going again? So it was at that
0: point that one of the M&A firms introduced me to our CFO. We didn't have a full-time CFO at that point. We had an outside, call it you know, an outside back office accounting firm, and that that was just such a big step in the company. And obviously, it sounds so duh obvious looking back. Yeah, you need a CFO genius. It, does, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize <laughs> that. So having him come in and start to really establish a lot of rigors and proper P and L management, and bringing that internally. But again, I met him via one of the M&A firms. And he's, he's still our CFO till today and I hope he's my CFO forever. You know? what,
1: was, what was your revenue or some proxy for size, number of employees, whatever you want to use at the time that you hired the CFO?
0: The time I hired the CFO, we were over 10 million in revenue, 10 Got million it. in annual revenue.
1: Got it. That's helpful for sure. Um, but I, we should I've have done like, it
0: when we were 4 million or 5
1: million. You know, Really? Yeah. Interesting. Take me through what else you did to build to sell. So you mentioned you kind of made some some very specific decisions along the way with a view to selling. One of them was to start conversations with M and firms. What else did you do internally? The way you managed your team, the way the kind of cu- the customers you took on to quote unquote build to sell.
0: Yeah, very good question. So uh, I brought on a couple of really key advisors to the company and gave them, you know, uh, uh small, you know, uh, uh pieces of, of ownership because they had recently sold companies, right? So I wanted to really tap into that and just their networks. And then additionally, uh uh we did a a, a profit sharing uh structure in the company with key senior people who we wanted to keep them with the company because again, we're a service-based company. We're only as good as our people. And that would have sent a very, you know, high turnover would not have been a, a promising uh, feature of the company to a potential buyer. And I wanted I wanted them to be involved in the process. Now, you know, the people we did that with, I could, you know, uh, count on one hand internally. So it was a really, it was a small key uh, uh, group of, uh, equity uh, participation units uh, to make them uh, as part of it, and then of course a big thing I, I should say was my business partner who heads up all of our creative side. So he, he and I he and I split the equity in a good way to where I wanted I I wanted to make sure that we were a team because I I hope we were going to be David against Goliath, and I wanted. unfortunately not not an us versus them i shouldn't say that antagonistically but that it truly was kind of us against the world so i knew we all had to have uh, a stake in the game
1: when did you bring in your your creative director uh
0: that was in 2014 early 2014 so still very very early early in the company
1: and how did they earn their equity Did they buy into the company did you give it to them over time how did that work
0: it, it, good question. Uh, it was a bit overtime, and he had a lot of really key relationships, was able to bring in a tremendous amount of business. And you know, kudos to him, he slashed his salary to a fraction of what it was before he joined. So that combination of earning it over time, cutting his salary, and also bringing in some pretty big pieces of business. it was just a a, a no a no brainer and truly felt like my, you know, Team member,
1: got it. Got it. Okay. How did you treat the profit sharing units at the exit? In other words, I guess a lot of people would be wondering, um, how do I keep my senior people to stick around for the earnout? When I know the only way I'm going to hit my earnout is if I keep those senior people. Like, how did you think through that?
0: So it, it's it's a very good question. Um, the, because, you know, we did do an earn out with Havas. So it's, it's a multi-year deal to basically earn out the hundred percent of the sale, uh, a lot, just as Havas structured my incentive to stay on, I wanted to structure the incentive of the other people in battery to stay on. Cause I knew we'd all have to do this together. So it was, it was, you know, really multi-year deals that were tied to the earnout structure. So, so we changed that over time once we knew the type of sale that, that we were going to do.
1: Got it. And would that, those funds for those senior people, would they be treated as taxable income or uh, capital gains? In other words, would they have gotten a lower tax rate? Do you know what I'm
0: getting at? Oh, that's a good question. That's above my pay grade. But yes, I, it was it was the, the the tax part of it, and so the M A guys that we brought on, one of them at their firm was a tax guy. He was a former CPA. Okay. He was a tax guy through and through, and so that of course was and still is a big learning, of course, because the tax component is such a such a key part of it. But that's one reason why I love that M A firm that the one partner was a former CPA, so had. The tax laws drilled in.
1: That's great. That's great. So let's get into the structure itself. So it's 2000, uh, I guess 16, 17, and you're starting to survey the the landscape of potential uh, acquisition types. Uh, what what did you come to learn about the types of deals that were available?
0: Yeah. So you know, I was about, I was thinking there were three different types of deals that could be right for us. Either one was A very small, you know, selling a small percentage of the company, call it 10 or 15 percent, right? Or, of course, there was a 51 percent, we'd sell a controlling interest, or there was a a 100 percent. So I kind of honed in on all right, I think those are the three types of deals that are right for us, obviously at different stages of the company. So then with these these MA guys, they, started looking at different firms. Again, let's say, you know, a, a a private equity firm was interested in one of those three, a holding company was interested in one of those three, and kind of these, these tech platforms were then interested in one of those three. So then we started honing in on, like I said earlier, there's definitely, the, these companies are comfortable with a certain type of deal. So we started, you know, uh, slotting ourselves into with these three types of companies, okay, how would they structure so we started to get more specific 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 over time as we, how, did, as we figured
1: this out. how did you ensure you're getting um, unbiased advice from your m a firm when since they get paid based on the transaction value, they would be incentivized to downplay a minority recapitalization, like selling 10% of your company, and they would be highly incentivized to get you to sell it all. Right. Did you think through that at all? or how? You- <laughs> yeah, I really
0: did. And, and I know it sounds uh, odd to say this, but that's where just a lot of trust came in. And that's, that's as I got to know these firms, uh, of course, absolutely. They're incentivized because we're, we're paying them, you know, once the deal got to be closer within the last six months to a year, we're paying them a monthly fee, but their monthly fee is peanuts compared to, to your point, yes, they're taking a percentage of the deal. So of course, the larger the deal is, the more incentivized they are to do that type of deal. That's what was important to me. And, and again, the only way I could do that is getting to know them over those two years and getting that trust and just... uh to use another bad business word, hoping that they were the right ones for us and we'd be the right fit for the long-term. So that, that was a process of just getting to
1: know those different groups over those two years. Got it. So you've got the three buckets. We would, we would refer to it as like a we, meaning uh, at value builder, but also uh, I think the M&A community, you would refer to it as like a minority recapitalization, less than 50%, mm-hmm. a majority recapitalization, 51%, and then like an outright sale. So those are the th- how the three buckets that you were considering, what kind of business was most likely to transact each of those types? So the the minority recap would have have appealed to who? Uh,
0: Good question. Those were, call it advertising tech platforms, right? They were looking at it as, let me invest some in battery and then let's plug battery into our larger tech portfolio. And then let's then we will then flip it, uh, you know, after a certain amount of time. So, and then the 51% was your traditional ad agency holding company. WPP is probably the biggest one out there, you know, the, those are just the types of deals they love to do. And then the, the number of years of the earnout can can vary, but, you know, it was very obvious that WPPs of the world wanted that 51%. That uh, uh, and then the 100%, I'd say that was probably a combination of those two, just different. I'd say there were, you know, as with any industry, there's so many new types of ad agency holding models out there, right? Uh, uh, trying to f- solidify the old model that's been around for 40, 50 years. So those are more, let's say, the newer models of looking to do it a different way. And they needed to grow their, their platform and their offering much quicker. Than a multi-year earner.
1: That's helpful. And and what did you start to think the company might be worth? Like, did you have kind of a, a sense of how values were coming in as either a multiple of EBITDA or multiple of revenue? Like, what were you hearing? What were you starting to get a sense of?
0: Yeah, we we so throughout those two years, we were getting a very good feel of you know the typical EBITDA and top line revenue multiples of ad agencies, what, and obviously there's a lot of different types of ad agencies. There are media buying ad agencies, there's creative ad agencies, which we are, and then there's call it, you know, digital development ad agencies. So, you know, the, the, the multiples are pretty consistent depending on what type of ad agency you are and also where you are in the country you know, New York and LA are getting higher multiples. And maybe let's say someone in the middle of the country, obviously it depends on the type of client you have. So another long winded answer to, there, there was no simple answer, but we were starting to understand those, those types of multiples. Um, and then only as we got closer, then we started to understand, how the earnout would be structured, how the multiple changes if we have a one-year earnout versus a three-year versus a five-year, right? So those things really start to change based on how long of an earnout it is or what percentage we're selling uh, at the at the beginning.
1: So as a standard sort of again, I'm looking just for a range of multiple EBITDA, like uh, you know, in the creative space. God, it's been, I mean, like, are we talking sort of? six to ten in that sort of range.
0: Yeah, yeah. We were even seeing stuff as high as 14. Yeah. Wow, 13, okay. yeah, based on based on the type of agency, the type of clients, the type of long-term relationships, or you know, how long the agency had been around. Yeah. <laughs> so so obviously you can see that's a tremendous range. I mean that sure. is just a god awful range depending on you know what the what the EBITDA is. So it was actually it was helpful but also it wasn 't because there was just such a range out there
1: and what impact did the length of the earnout have on the ultimate value that you were being offered? It, was there a linear relationship, meaning the longer you were willing to stay in an earnout the, the, the higher the, the multiple the theoretical a-
0: multiple. absolutely yes, but then also of course there 's the negative side is the longer it takes, the more things can happen in the market you know that uh, maybe there's going to be a horrible pandemic called Corona. <laughs> or, uh, uh, turn out, you know, so don't so joke. <laughs> yes, yes, there's the positive side of you have more runway, more time, but also a higher multiple because you're stretching up, But then, obviously, with more time, you know, opens yourself up for more things going wrong. But that goes back to that headline of I wanted to be ready when we were ready, and mm-hmm. basically. A number of things happened in 2017 that I felt like we were ready, but way too young to sell 100%. I realized that. I said, we are, we are not nearly big enough after only four and a half years to sell 100%. So that was, and again, that was my lens by which I evaluated everything. I wanted to be ready when we were first ready. And I felt we were ready, but we weren't ready for 100%. So
1: and that, that, and point, that must have been that, music- that must have been music to the ears of these acquirers, saying, "You know he wants to put some money in his jeans, but we're going to keep Anson because he's such a young guy yeah, that, that, that that's exactly it because I knew I've got
0: so you know because. Part of the na- the re- the reason why I named the company Battery is that was my nickname when I was a little kid because I had so much energy that I they oh, called lovely. me a rechargeable battery that didn't need to be recharged because I guess in the early '80s that's probably when rechargeable batteries were first invented. Sure. So I was called Battery, and and it, it kind of infused just my energy and passion. So when I when I was telling that to potential buyers, yes, that was the first thing everyone wanted to hear is, are you in this for the long haul? Uh, and Am I in this for 30 years? I don't know, but I'm for sure in this, you know, throughout my forties.
1: Right. And so take us through what you, what you found when you went to market, did you get multiple offers? Like what was the sort of range of offers that you got and from whom? We did. We did. We, we got
0: multiple offers. I'd say we, we, we had, we marketed ourselves to, I want to say about 10 different types of companies, uh, then we went under NDA and started to get pretty serious with about five or six of those, and then uh, we got offers from those. So it it, it whittled down, and then but there were they were very different. What I love, there were very different types of
1: offers in the range. Give honestly. us the range. Tell us about the range. Uh, just
0: describe uh, the range. So 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 there were those type of offers of let's just invest a very small minority you know, of the, the 10, 20% versus the 51%. There was even a, uh, an 80, 90%. There were, there were, there were different ranges of earnouts, you know, uh, uh, one, two years versus, uh, four or five years. And there was, there was even ranges of, uh, how they wanted to change our name, uh, how they wanted to plug us into their network, how they were being very flat out honest of what they wanted to do with us, uh. Some of them were US-based, some of them were uh, uh, European-based, some were a mix of uh, uh, both. Um, it, was a, it, it was a nice range of, of different types of structures for sale.
1: What was it that they saw these acquirers as strategic in what you guys had built? That's a, that's, a, that's a pretty nice list of offers. Having five serious conversations provides a little bit of competitive tension and it, you know, it gives you some, some equity or some leverage in that, relation, in that negotiation. I think people would be curious, that, so what did Battery have that was so attractive that you were able to uh, you know, attract five different you know, serious contenders?
0: I think the, the one commonality was where we were based. They, were all, they were all very keen of either expanding into LA an existing offering or putting a flag in the ground for the first time in LA or strengthening their offering. It definitely was being in LA for sure was the, the the number one commonality between uh, all of them.
1: Isn't that Uh, interesting? How did you feel about changing the name? You know, it, it, it's interesting, you know, on
0: one side, you know, and that's that's the the balance of being an entrepreneur. You do get emotional about this because it's your baby, it's you, it's it's it, it it's it's interesting being an entrepreneur. There are things that it's good to be emotional about and there are things that it's not good to be emotional about, I guess, as in as is life itself, right? There's things that are okay to get deeply emotionally invested, but others that didn't. So I kept telling myself, you know, uh okay, it's, it's gotta be all about the deal. It's gotta be all about the deal. It can't just be, it can't just be about the, the name, but of course, you know, then we also very much thought, okay, how will this impact the staff, right? What will they think about? And of course, because of confidentiality reasons, we couldn't be openly talking about this process with the staff. But so we knew there was going to be the day where hopefully, ta-da, we unveiled it and, how would everyone react how and we knew changing a name would that would theoretically cause a huge you know uh, reaction, so I was also thinking about what was that what was that speech I was going to make to the troops, and how would I position it to them and I, not position it in a trying to sell it to them How would I just tell it like it is and i, I re, in, in me kind of practicing that realized the type of deal I knew i I wanted. So, Interesting. so the so, name was a very key, key point because of how I knew everyone, re- because it wasn't a s- sail off into the sunset and we're gone. It was this, we're now in this together. So everyone, I wanted it to be
1: something that everyone would enjoy. And so I'm not sure I got a straight answer on how important the name was. It, so you had a number of different offers. Uh, did you want to keep the name Battery? And, yes, and so, yes. I'm sorry. That, I wanted to keep the name Battery. Yes. Okay, and that was part of the... There was different variations
0: on that. Some of them would put their name in front of battery or their name after battery or their name as a part of... So so there were these different variations.
1: Uh, yeah, part of the WPP network of companies versus like, you know, powered by WPP or something like Right, that. right, exactly. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so that's helpful for sure. I'd love to know how you... Uh, thought through the conversation and speech to the troops, because, you know, I do, occasionally I'll do a a talk, not these days, but (laughs) occasionally I'll do a talk to, to business owners and I'll talk about drivers of value and I get to the Q and A part. And like, no matter what the first question or certainly one of the first sort of three questions is always, how do I tell my employees? I'd love to know how you told your employees. So the first
0: thing we said to them is, you know, we, we, so, 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 uh, last year, the deal basically closed right before we, uh, it, it was announced at the Cannes, uh, advertising festival mm-hmm. in France last June. So, which is where Havas uh, is headquartered, I believe, isn't it? They're headquartered in Paris. Yes. Oh, exactly. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. Yes. Yes. Um, so, so. Havas announced it, I want to say during Cannes, I forget the exact date. I should have that tattooed on me, but call it June (laughs) 15th. But of course, we had closed the deal shortly before then, but it wasn't publicly announced. So I had to wait till it was publicly announced and then quickly tell everyone. And the first thing I thought is okay, if I'm in their position, what do I want to hear? And honestly, my knee jerk reaction was to tell them, okay, guys, nothing's going to change. We're all good. We're a team. We're a family. But then I thought, well, that's total BS. Of course, things are going to change. That's the whole reason why you do a deal to change things, hopefully for the better. And then I realized, yeah, I, I can't treat these people like little babies. Don't worry. Nothing's going to change. We're all okay. Um, by the way, a few of us just got a big check, but no, nothing's going to change. And now is a big turning point to me of saying, look, Things are going to change. And I really, the whole reason why we're doing this is to change for the better, but things are going to change. Just the the world changes. God knows the world just really changed three weeks ago. But that was a big, and that was a big thing in my mind thinking, I do want this to change battery. And how can it change battery? But it was interesting that my knee jerk reaction was to say, don't worry, nothing's going to change. I thought that's total BS. Yeah. And I would see through that if someone told. That to me. So you laid out what would change in that presentation. Yeah, what we would change. We laid out even, even like the basics of saying, well, <clears throat> okay, how are we going to transition shared services over to our parent company? Meaning our IT or or our payroll, these kind of basics, you know, what's going, what, what is going to change, what I don't know what's going to change, what should change, what should not change. And so, you know, obviously there's there's there, there's so many confidentialities in an agreement like this that you mm-hmm. can't talk about every detail for, for obvious reasons. And and I think we're all mature enough to realize that, that there, you know, but there were certain things obviously that would change and would affect them of, okay, we're going to go on the parent company's 401k plan. What does that mean? You're, you're now, uh, we're going to go onto their bank instead of ours. What What does that mean? So I felt like it was really important to discuss kind of the the day-to-day shared services changes and then and then this all right we're in this journey together. Let's 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 see what, what happens. But that is the tough thing these days and the whole notion of transparency where yes you want to be transparent, but in this case, I'm legally bound not to be transparent in certain things. So it's that it's a fine line
1: without how did how did you reconcile that in your own mind? Because I know a lot of founders that I interview they, they had real trouble with that because the, the people that, that started with them and believed in their original idea, they feel a tremendous debt of gratitude to them. And, and then they kind of go around negotiating behind their backs and they're carrying around this sort of secret, like they're a, they're a, you know, a, a lover cheating on their spouse or something, right? And how did you sort of reconcile in your own mind that, that you can't talk about it?
0: Uh, yeah that 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 absolutely was, and that was very early on when we started to get serious with you know whatever it was five, six, or seven out of the ten companies and you know and signed a uh, you know pretty legitimate nDAs you know of now this process was being restricted to a certain number of people but that that process from starting to sign those nDAs to the final completion i mean that was a good seven or eight months. So that Mm. was a lot. And I I had no idea that part of it would take that long either. But so, yes, it was that thing of thinking I'm cheating on everyone, you know, but I I was obviously it was an easy easy choice because I'm just legally bound to not talk about it. But yeah, it did. It it felt because it's not as if we were 10,000 people and I could go hide in a corner. We were we still are this family, and, and because it's a very creative business, people spend a lot of hours with each other. There, there's kind of a lot of, you know, family banter back and forth. But I, So I, I just kept telling myself, how can I do this so it's good change for everyone?
1: Got it. It sounds like you thought it through a lot. What was the most surprising reaction to the way – you delivered the news. What was the thing that you didn't anticipate in, in delivering the news to the team?
0: You know, some, and this was part internal and external, like some, some, I, I sometimes I got the question of, wow, what are you doing next? Are you going to retire? And I said, no, 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 it's, it's the exact, just because when you say you sell a company, we mm-hmm. all think, okay, you sell a hundred percent and you go move to, I don't know, Uh, The Bahamas or whatever, but there's so many different varying aspects of that. So, you know, and then I, you know, wanted to describe the structure without, I couldn't go into too many details. It basically said, no one, I'm not going anywhere. Phil, my creative partner is not going anywhere. We're, 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 we're in this now for, for the long haul. But I was, you know, it's interesting, maybe because I had gone through, that three four years of understanding every type of sale when you when you tell someone you sell you sold your company their question is oh wow do you sleep in now or what are you doing tomorrow it's like, no, no 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 I I still work there right
1: yeah 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 so what proportion of your value and I know it varies based on how which sort of rung on the earnout ladder you end up hitting but could you estimate among the five people that you were getting kind of serious about, what proportion of the deal they were prepared to pay kind of cash versus something in the future tied to either earnout or you know some variation of burnout like I know there were a variety of offers you considered, but can you give me a sense like what proportion they were going to pay in cash versus sort of in the future? yeah,
0: everyone really more had the commonality of you know, definitely more in the future than up front. And, and obviously that very much differed based on the length of the earnout for, for, for obvious uh, reasons, but definitely it was the, it was the overwhelming majority uh, over time. And some of that majority really changed greatly based on the, again, the, the, you know, based on the forecasted success or failure. Of of a potential earnout. So just the the the, the 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 ranges were just pretty wide, even with the same deals, just based on an earnout. An earnout can go great or can go poorly. So there's just there's even a range within the same deals, which, sure. which makes it complicated and tough to wrap your head around because, oh, by the way, you're still running a business. And that was a real challenge of constantly regulating myself. Wait. Am I spending too much time on this process versus what I need to be doing and running my business? That was, that was tough, because you can just yeah. get sucked into that. That can be your full-time job.
1: Yeah, yeah, and whether the other side does it intentionally or not, answering all their questions gets, you know, they, they know that you're taking your eye off the ball, the price is coming down as you, as you start to lose your, your, uh, your energy through the process. The, so, But it's fair to say that, that, that more than half of the, the compensation across all of the offers you were looking at would have been sort of at risk on some level.
0: Abs- absolutely, yes, yes.
1: Yeah, okay, that's, that's helpful for sure. I guess it leads me to my next question, and, I, and again, I, this might be something you can't answer directly, so maybe, maybe indirectly is fine. But clearly, we're we're in the throes of we're recording this uh, sort of second week in April, so Los Angeles has been dealing with the pandemic, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, really legitimately for over a month. Mm-hmm. I was in Los Angeles when they really started to lock it down, so I I can remember, and um, and clearly we don't know, you know, how the next months will unfold. How how is it impacting your ability to hit your earnout? Uh, could you give advice to other entrepreneurs who deal with a black swan and they're just, you know, in the throes of an earnout? Like, it, can you renegotiate? Uh, do people take it into account that there's been this crazy event? Like, how, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, no, it, it, it's a good question.
0: I mean, we're 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 definitely too early on to know. How of these four weeks or the next three months or the next 12 months, how will that really affect the RNL? So that's probably the easier question is we're we're simply just right now our business is up and thank good knock on wood, our business is not down again, it's only been four weeks, but our business is not down. Now, will that remain the same way for six months, twelve months, eighteen months? You know, your your guess is as good as mine, but the big, big, big difference is the support system, you know, of the network. Of now being a part of a bigger network to where just yesterday we had a major account that's held by one of the other agencies in the network, and they introduced us uh, to that uh, account uh, a month ago that happened. so not only now is the network actually funneling us some new business opportunities and we're doing the same, but even just the basic things like you know we have weekly calls with the network, just understanding financial wise healthcare wise it wise i mean we 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 truly do have a you know an empire be, behind us and even just even those basic things of joining a global leadership call every week and hearing how people in our network are dealing with it i mean that that support structure is could could never put a price uh, on that even just emotionally you know and of course financially
1: you're all of a sudden not as lonely as as it, as it sometimes feels for a lot of entrepreneurs, where it all comes to them. Have, what advice would you give an entrepreneur if you know you're having a beer with them and, and they said, "Yeah, we're thinking about doing a you know three year earnout, let's say," um, and the earnout is is gated, meaning. Um, in order to release the next tranche of funds to grow your business, you need to hit a certain milestone. So year one, you have to hit this milestone and that will trigger these extra benefits uh, from head office. Uh, have you ever seen a structure like that? If you were, you know, what advice would you give to a, a buddy who was, who was sort of evaluating an offer that had those sort of gates in it?
0: I mean, with us, honestly, we wanted to have, specific milestone gates because I felt the company was too young at that point to be sold hundred percent. So I felt like we still had so much runway and so much growth ahead of us that honestly, I wanted to be incentivized and capitalized accordingly. So I did look for that type of deal with very specific dates and revenue targets and profitability targets that, that, would unlock key milestones throughout the process <clears throat> not just now and then the end of the earnout so but that was because i felt the company was too young and too small to to sell 100% i felt like there was so much runway with the right partner we could grow bigger better faster and again that I was
1: it, i guess it's also de-risking it a little bit for you in the sense that you, you're earning a, a little bit of money along the way, as opposed to the big check at the very end if you hit hit it. It's not all or nothing, I guess. Yes, yes. exactly. Yes, yes. Got it. And are there sticks involved as well? Uh, and again, if we have to talk more generally and can't talk about your specific deal, but, but in general about the other offers, or just if you're giving advice to another entrepreneur, some deals I've seen that there's carrots uh, for hitting those milestones along the way. And so you're kind of getting paid each year, but there's also sticks, meaning if you don't hit the milestone, it can make it more difficult to hit the second milestone if you don't hit the first one.
0: Yeah. I mean, I will say we, we look at, yeah, different types of deals. Some deals, the, some of them were, were, cumulative how you did each year was based on previous years or a combination of of the year and and if you did if you if you did poorly for too long it might be too difficult to regain footing from that you know a lot of the different deals didn't simply reset after a year or reset every 6 months they were they were based on each other which is which is a huge risk uh, of course um uh so that was that was a big, big part of it. Is looking and structuring that, and honestly, it was it was eye opening to me. I had no idea there were so many different potential variations. Iterations. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you know, and and I, and I still, you know, again, my goal has to be, you know, theoretically on paper, growing a business isn't rocket science. You grow the top line, you grow the bottom line, right? There's obviously so much more uh, complications than that, but. I also said, okay, at the same time, I can't get so obsessed with this formula in the sky of saying where every penny is going, where every dollar is going. At the end of the day, I've got to grow the top line and I've got to grow the bottom line. And and that will then take care of itself. So I was also looking at other types of structures thinking, okay, how is my brain? How can I forecast myself dealing with that mentally and emotionally over uh, over over the time period of that of that deal,
1: yeah. How important did your lawyer become as the negotiation uh, got further down the track? What I've heard from other entrepreneurs, I'd be curious this if this happened with you. Was early on uh, the relationship with M and A professional is critical. Uh, and then as it gets into the finer elements of the deal, like what are the gates, what are the carrots, what are the sticks? The MA professional sometimes takes somewhat of a, a backseat relative to the, the, the attorney who's sort of trying to protect you. Did that happen with you? And, and maybe describe that if you could. Yeah,
0: so <clears throat> that was also part of our process of... Uh, Interviewing the different types of & A guys is I wanted guys who were going to be with us, guys and girls who were going to be with us for the long haul. So our M A team was really the spine and stayed with us throughout the entire deal. And then our legal team, to your point, it was differing levels of importance. and again, just because uh, we were just by nature of who we were dealing with, we were dealing with potential parent companies in varying different sizes. You know, the big, again, the big agency uh, holding companies down to other smaller groups. So just by that pure variant really was a, a David and Goliath. And, and most of these firms, th- this is rinse and repeat for them, right? Their legal teams are doing this all the time, negotiating deals all the time. They're very good at this. They have very certain templates they're, they're, they're interested in doing. And so I, I'd say the, our legal team played varying levels of importance throughout, but I wanted our M&A guys to be that spine the, the whole way through because they were truly going to help us build the right deal for us. Uh, I felt more than, more than the lawyers. Uh,
1: yeah. Would. Clearly uh- – Havas, a great company, well-known well company with a very high reputation. Uh, were there other players earlier, maybe earlier on in the negotiation that tried to use any unscrupulous tactics with you? We've heard
0: uh,
1: any number of different kind of tips you know, tricks and gotchas that, that acquirers try to pull the wool over the eyes of owners because they know you're busy running a company and you don't have the time or energy to become an expert in M.A. Did you have any sort of unscrupulous actors try any tricks on you that? Uh... You,
0: you know, it's, it's I, I wouldn't, you know, not that I'm trying to look at everything with rose colored glasses, but we definitely had a deal very early on, uh, and I'm being honest. I forget what it was about that deal, but I remember saying to the guys at that company, saying, "You wouldn't take this deal if you were me. What? It, it, am I missing something here? This <laughs> right. seems so glaringly obvious. Would you do this if you were me? Um, and it was so glaringly obvious, but that was that was the type of deal that the parent company was simply comfortable in doing. And so it wasn't really, I didn't look at it as nefarious or scrupulous. I just looked at it as that's the type of deal they want and not the type of deal I want. Okay, great. We're not, we're not meant for each other. We're not meant to get married. I'm looking for a certain type of mate. They're looking for a mate. It doesn't mean it's unscrupulous. It just means, well, that's simply not the right deal for me. So maybe I was lucky in that. I didn't feel like we were having people coming out to, and now maybe that's because our m and team did such a good job of filtering mm. that out. And I never even saw that, or I never even realized that they could have been having conversations and I never saw. But I do remember that at one point, there was something so glaring. I said to them, is there something I'm
1: missing? If you were in my shoes, would you really do this? And it was- And, and how did they react? Did they, did, they, did they counter offer with that? Or did they say, did they walk-
0: <clears throat> no, the reaction was, well, based on the parent company and the type of deals that parent company does, that's what they want to do. And we said, well, guys, great. No ill will. Hope our paths cross again and let's kill this right now. And it was it was a no brainer to kill it.
1: And did they come back? Uh, they
0: did come back, but it they came back. a, a, a they did, but it never really got very far out of the starting gate. But that just show, you know, we, we had a positive uh, uh, ending to that transaction. We said, okay, this doesn't work. That's fine. You know, no, no ill will. And they did come back, but it was still under the, uh, under the parameters of, well, that's still the type of deal we want to do. And that, yeah. was, that was a huge learning opportunity for me.
1: How was it affected to have sold your company, Um, notwithstanding that you're still working very hard to, to, to integrate, how has it affected you emotionally since the deal has been consummated? It's, it's
0: a, that's a really good question. I definitely experienced different emotions than I thought I would, right? So right after the deal closed, I thought I would experience the obvious emotion of, Exhale. Okay. All right. We just, we just did it. That's okay. But, and I'll be honest about this because I tell this to other people. I, and I know there's a term for this and I forget what the term for this is. I had the feeling of, oh my God, did they realize the company they just bought? I'm not worthy. Wait, why in the world did they buy a company like, like ours? Did in, 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 and I know there's, there's a, there's a, there's a,
1: there's a word for that. And that imposter I'm just, syndrome. I'm imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You had that too, right? <laughs> I had no idea I would have that feeling. And it took it, it took a few months to get over that feeling. I had an imposter syndrome. I thought, oh my God, you know, and maybe it was my eagerness to please and this, but there wasn't any specific reason. I had, I had no idea about the imposter syndrome. That was the biggest learning. I wish I had known that before, or at least realized that maybe that was, that was, that was an unintended emotion that I had no idea I would, I would have.
1: Hmm. What else? So there, so you expected the euphoria and the relief. Um, you didn't expect the imposter syndrome. What other sort of emotions have there been along the way? you know they're
0: definitely because we're we're again this is not a sell 100% of the company sale off in, into the the sunset it's a it's a multi-year earnout it's a you know trying to take the long-term view versus the short-term right because in any earnout every penny is very important because it's multiples it's multiples on pennies so every penny is important trying to trying to sweat the small stuff in certain areas and not sweat the small stuff in other areas. Cause I, I think in any earnout, out an entrepreneur can drive themselves crazy. They could say, well, let's not throw the $200 pizza party at the office. Because if I have a six multiple, I just cost myself $800 for that $200 pizza party. Or if <laughs> I have a 15 multiple, why am I throwing a thousand dollar pizza party? And, right. and I do think, and I think, well, but hold on. If we don't do a pizza party, blah, 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 blah. So I think, and I had, I had a friend that said that to me, that he was so watching every penny, he stopped throwing the pizza party because he realized that every penny was, you know, 10 pennies uh, out mm-hmm. of his pocket. And I I think that's the right way to look at it in certain senses, but not the right way to look at it in other senses. Hey, maybe if you have a six-month earn out, don't throw $200 pizza parties, but we've got a long enough <laughs> runway to where... We got to keep throwing the pizza parties, even if it's going to cost a thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you buy yourself a trophy? I, I, I didn't. I didn't. It's funny. I had friends giving me different advice and what to buy, what not to buy. I didn't buy a single thing.
1: Where? I, how did you? Where? Did, how did you find out the check had? Cleared or the wire transfer had sh- cleared your bank account. Did you go to an ATM or were you uh, uh, at home? Or like, when did you see the money show up in the account?
0: Yeah, I was at my uh, daughter's preschool graduation, <laughs> already feeling <laughs> emotional. My daughter is in preschool and seeing images of her getting married and on my Chase app hitting refresh as many times <laughs> as my thumb could hit refresh. And then I saw it there and then she was up on stage and I was like, keep it, keep it together. And so luckily I was in a place where it was okay to cry because my daughter was on stage. But The emotions were just, and I was like, hold on. And then I was like, well, hold on. Let me, let me feel these emotions for a second. That's okay. Let it kind of rush over. Did you you actually cry? Oh, I did. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, And you know, since I've cried, since then I've cried for other reasons, good and bad, <laughs> you know, but I was just, I hit refresh on that Chase app more times than I want to admit, because <laughs> you still don't feel like it's real. You don't feel like it's real until you see, yeah. you know, the money in the bank account. You can sign whatever you want to sign, but not real until the money's there.
1: All the moms and dads are looking at, what's wrong with Anson, man? He seems pretty emotional. It's just, it's just like preschool. Right. And why is he looking at his phone instead of looking yeah. at his head performing? Isn't his, yeah, but exactly. It's what a creep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so this has been fun. I, uh, I really appreciate you spending the time. I think it's a, a tremendous story, clearly. Uh, and and uh, I wish you all the best in the next uh, few years, next chapter. It'd be great to do this. Is there, if people want to reach out, um, do you, do you have like social media that you, are you a Twitter guy? Do you have LinkedIn? What's the best way for people to, to reach out?
0: Yeah, I, I love, love, love LinkedIn. So okay. uh, just Anson Sobe, you know, I'm, you can find me on LinkedIn and I love, uh, I have an obsession with LinkedIn. I think it's one of the best <laughs> okay. things out there. The <laughs> just by all, all the self-promotion <laughs> <laughs> that goes right. on, on LinkedIn. That you have to, you have to seed through the self-promotion, but it's, it's a great, it's a great
1: platform. Awesome. So we'll put that in the show notes and the spelling of your name so people can search you up on LinkedIn. Uh, thank you for doing this.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog.